Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler. We are recording on Saturday, November 4th, a few days before Election Day, where there will be important elections in Virginia and Kentucky, things that I guess Victor will be harbingers of what might be ahead in 2024. Also elections in Milford, Connecticut, but we won't talk about them. Uh, Victor Davis Hanson is the star and namesake of this show. He is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. He has a website. It's called The Blade of Perseus. You'll find that at victorhanson.com. We'll talk about that towards the end of the show. Victor, I think there's a lot of matters anti-Semitic uh, roiling and percolating in America, on campuses, law firms, and uh, in Congress. And we'll get to AOC vilifying one of America's most prestigious and respected uh, Jewish lobbying organizations. We'll get your thoughts on that and plenty more right after these important messages. Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor, the headline from John, I never get it right. I've said this many times before here. John Hindraker, that's how I'm going to say it, from Powerline. And, of course, regular regular listeners know Powerline is a, a place where we, you go first thing in the morning, Victor, to get some analyses of uh, various things. The guys, Scott Johnson and he and Steve Hayward just – so damn bright. They're anyway, very good. Is, they're very good. All of them. Yeah, I like all I, of them. I know them a little bit, but they're all very analytical. Right. Very. They. If there's one institution, you know, website that punches way above its weight, its power line. But John has a piece from last week. AOC goes DEFCON ten on APAC. 
So, um, you know, APAC is is the um, the what would you American call it Israeli the... American Israeli Public Affairs Committee, and okay? it would be on this more conservative versus vis a vis other. Yeah, it's by it's it, yeah. It's not hard right wing as she implied, is what you're saying. Well, I think frankly, I would consider it more liberal than than anything. But it's it's does not it's not overtly anything. And again, there are Jewish members of Congress who happen to be Republican, etc. And they do they do try to act bipartisan. But we have a new Democratic Party. Victor, it's not, you know, your mom and dad, it's not the Democratic Party your mom belonged to, and AOC and others are ascendant. And here's what she tweeted the other day. APAC endorsed scores of January 6th insurrectionists. There are no friends to American democracy. They are one of the more racist and bigoted PACs in Congress as well, who disproportionately target members of color. They are an extremist organization that destabilizes U.S. democracy. Victor, I think even two years ago, three years ago, if a member of Congress had said this about APAC, their caucus would have just vilified them instantly. We're in a, we're in a new world now. But uh, Victor, your thoughts about what she has done and your thoughts about the uh, roilings and some people calling it the civil war within the democratic caucus over israel and anti-semitism well for our listeners just to frame everything out there was ample evidence that the dei diversity equity and inclusion movement or the woke movement or the Rainbow Coalition, or the marginalized, whatever we want to call this group of people on the activist elite that said that they were collectively victims as and that they were victimized by victimizers who were just collectively white. Okay, everybody knew that. And that had, Jack, that had a long history. There was Al Sharpton in your part of the woods, Freddie's Fashion Mart, I think it was called, then we had Jaime Town. We had the picture of Obama. Remember him with Farrakhan that they suppressed? We had Obama uh, with a video with Rashid Khalidi that the LA Times suppressed. We had, now we have the BLM glider poster. We have these professors, uh, African-American professor, a lecturer, excuse me, at Stanford, separating Jews from his class. African-American professor at Cornell said he was exhilarated by the killing. A lot of people from the Middle East voicing the same thing. Okay, so those things are fused now, Jack. The DEI movement, and, and we don't want to talk about it because according to this critical race theory, how can victims be victimizers? But when you look at who is committing hate crimes and who are disproportionately the victims, it's not, you know, it's not your crazy guy from, you know, the Ozarks or the plains of Montana disproportionately. Disproportionately, it is people of color, primarily African-Americans who are over twice their numbers in the general population as committing hate crimes. And the one group, second, I think, targeted group after Asians are Jews at 2.5% of the population. And they're, and they're, as Christopher Ray said, 60%. I don't know if it's that high, 55%. 
of the victims. And now everybody knows that. And so when you get these AOC and the squad and, you know, one one member of the squad has a map with no Israel. The other one says it's the Benjamin's baby. The other of Rashid goes out and she's out the Capitol calling a nanosecond after the news that Jews are butchered. She's talking about genocide on the part of Jews. So everybody knows that. And it's nobody wants to talk about it. But if you want to stop the engine of anti-Semitism in 1950, everybody said it's rural white people who are very, I don't know, clannish. They, they support. There wasn't very many of them, but that was where it was. If you saw Gentleman's Agreement in that movie with Gregory Peck, yeah, that absolutely. it was either the elite still stalking Republican golf course that was kind of a soft bigotry or it was the hard one. Right. And I grew up with it. I did not meet a Jewish person, I think, until I was 18 that I was aware of. I know my mom had Jewish friends, but I didn't know they were Jewish mm-hmm. until I went to UC Santa Cruz. But I heard about Jews from kids at school that were involved in their their families were in the packing business or the fruit business or the brokerage. And they'd always say, well, a farmer doesn't get anything because a bunch of Jews on the East Coast control everything. And I never knew what that meant. But that was where anti-Semitism was. It's not now. It is a monopoly on the left and in particular the DEI, marginalized people industry. And one of the most nefarious things that's happened is the radical Palestinian or just the Palestinian movement have fused their cause with the DEI cause. And so when you want to look for anti-Semitism, Jack, you go to the squad. First place you go. And then you can go to professors. Uh, Now, we have an Iranian-American professor, Jack, at Oberlin, who was out and out calling for basically the destruction of Israel. And guess what, Jack? He's the former Iranian ambassador to the United States. And he's on the faculty of Old Bergen. That's almost like you're putting a gun to your head and said, please, I'm a Westerner, blow my brains out. Yeah, it's crazy. And so I don't know how that that's what's going to be very hard to eliminate anti-Semitism, because when you say to the university. Do you think that there's oppression or there's bias or there's systemic? Yes, yes. We have a whole DEI industry for that. We've got this czar and that czar. But then if you come back to them and say, but you're the people that are doing it. You people, the czars, the DEI people, they are the anti-Semites. You know, who's going to police the police, as Juvenile said. So they don't, I don't think it's going to be very hard to get rid of. It's not out here in rural California. I see a lot of poor second or third generation uh, whose grandparents came out to Oklahoma I see a lot of Hispanic working people. I don't hear a lot of anti-Semitism. If you want to find anti-Semitism in the San Joaquin Valley, you go to a university and you will see it. And it will be from the DEI people, from the elite. It's it's a top-down DEI monopoly on it. And that's saying that it wasn't in the past. I I think it's also reached bottom, and bottom meaning in in the political power structure, you know, there's Democratic parties at town levels and local levels, and these have been taken over many places 
They've been taken over by radicals. They're not your they're not your Tip O'Neill Democrats anymore who run the local parties. These guys, the old timers are being ousted and there are real radicals taking over. So what we see now with AOC and company, uh, I think, is my opinion, is that, okay, they're loud and there is is still a significantly, there is a small percentage of of the congressional Democrats, but I think in two or three cycles, they will be well, uh, and they're drunk. angry right now because they felt that they were the tip of the Democratic spear, that they were telling Schumer, Pelosi what to do. I come Jeffries. And now they, they feel that all of a sudden that Biden is mildly bipartisan. I think he's not done enough for Israel, but he's surely not done enough for them that they're furious. We are the Democratic Party of the future. Why can't we be anti-Semitic? That's basically their message. It's really strange what's going on. I get a snail mail to my home residence maybe for a week. Got one yesterday. You unlock it, Jack. It's the same thing. I don't even have to open it. There's no return address or there's a phony one. I think this one was something like news agency. You open it up and, hey, Vic, get get some info on Israel. Next page. Israel Jews, that kind of stuff. And then people have written me, why do you put angry readers on your website? Every one of them now, the FFU, the pornographic language, the scare quotes, the capital letters, the bad grammar, the subtext of it is Israel and Jews. It is. And they're coming from the left. And that that's what's really strange. And even some people in the left, um, or as you said, they're they're unapologetic about it. I, I don't think they're they feel when you see from the river to the sea, and then you see Taleb saying, Well, it doesn't mean that. What does it mean then? If you're gonna get rid of Israel, I guess she's saying, Jack, well, we just mean to get rid of Israel, and we just mean that we don't want to kill all the Jews. They can live under Hamas when we take it over. Like they do in Gaza, I suppose. What does she think? That was it's so strange because that radical Palestinian movement and radical Islamic movement in general, on every checklist of the left, trans, check, gays, check, blacks, check, freedom of speech, check, freedom of religion, check, atheism, Agnet, every one of them, it is anti-left wing. Every one of them, at least doctrinaire. It only has one commonality with the DEI. It believes in authoritarianism and that any means necessary are justified by their noble means. That's the only commonality. And yet these crazy, useful idiots on campus cheer that stuff on. And right, it's, it's trying to set, I guess, you know, in military history terms, it's prepping the battlefield. That's what it's all about. It's trying to lower the bar of what's acceptable so that you get so much of it. You just get they think everybody's going to get in a fetal position. Put your hands over your head, knees to chest and say, make it go all make it all go away. Okay, I won't support Israel anymore. I'll just say on the one hand, on the other, both sides, cycle of violence. That's not what you want. And just leave me alone. That's what they're trying to do on campus. I think it works on campus because these clueless students 
that are not from the Middle East or not from the DEI industry go along with it. And they just want to be accepted or they think that's the prevailing orthodoxy and it's better in a cost benefit analysis to join it than oppose it. Well, Victor, it's interesting. You, I, I don't think I sent this to you prior to the show, but um, speaking about what's going on on campus, an opinion piece on CNN from <clears throat> Professor uh, Columbia Shai uh, Davidai, D-A-V-I-D-A-I. Yes. I'm a Jewish Columbia professor, Columbia University, New York City. I wouldn't allow my children to go here. And he writes, uh, terribly stricken personally, but of course, he should, well, shouldn't we all be by the atrocities that happened October 7th? Having spent over 13 years building a close-knit community of like-minded liberals, I suddenly find myself abandoned, abandoned by the resounding silence of friends and neighbors who refuse to publicly denounce Hamas's evil crimes against humanity, abandoned by the chant from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, code words for the eradication of Jewish, of Jews living in Israel, abandoned by Columbia University, my very employer, which in the name of fostering different points of view has allowed such expressions to take place, etc. Two things, Victor, um, I guess you, we've talked a little about in the past about take take Jay Bacharia, different issue, has to do with COVID, but the overnight abandoning of colleagues by even supposed good friends is uh is something I think I find kind of surprising, but I think it's de rigueur on on campuses. Uh, yeah, it is. And the, you know what the funny thing is? It's the systemic lying on the part of university administrators. They say, well, you know, we're we we have a we have a, a real problem here. We have the on the one hand we have Islamophobia, on the other hand we have anti-Semitism, and we just want to stop the hate on both sides and cycle of violence. So we're, we're we have a committee invest. That's what they say, but but flat. Go back about a month or two before this invasion. If you're a student at Stanford University and you pull down and tear down a Black Lives Matter poster and they put they're going to they're going to expel you believe me if you're a student at harvard three months ago and you get out with a bullhorn in the, on the free speech area and you say satanic is trans gay they're going to suspend you they will and if you don't believe me look what happened to joshua katz all he wrote he wrote an article that suggested that the tactics used by storming a dean's office or an administrator's office, strong arm tactics by a bunch of black students was, he used the word terrorism. And it was in the sense that they were trying to disrupt the normal flow of business through physical presence, I guess you could say almost implied violence to, to get a political message across, endorsed. And what did they do? They went through his entire career. They, they went through everything to try to destroy him. And they finally took away his tenure on a trumped up little minor matter that they went after. And so this idea that they have to accept anti-Semitism because they have a long record of tolerance of unpopular is not true. They have a long record of, of appeasing and mollifying uh, really radical speech. And they have a long record that if you challenge that, if you challenge BLM or the trans movement or even the the new green deal, you're, you're not going to have free speech rights on a campus. But now 
if you challenge the anti-Semitism, they're going to tell you, well, this we believe in free speech. We don't agree with these people. But unfortunately, we have a climate of tolerance. So if a person tears down a, a poster or he he gets up and he says that, you know, that from the river to the sea and uh, well, you know, that's what we do on this campus. We we invite different different opinions. They don't. And so that's the biggest lie they promulgate. It gets me so angry when you get some. You can write those uh, memos now. You don't need AI to write them. Any dean, provost, president, when he's under pressure or she's under pressure of all of the nuts coming out of the woodwork, and there's a lot of them, to voice their anti-Semitic, you can see they wait and wait and wait and wait and wait, put their finger in the air and they go, when will this pass? Do I have to write this? Please let me let, just, just let it go. Right. And then when they can't and some donor calls up and says, I give you a million bucks or 10 million, I'm not giving you a damn cent anymore. Then they say, OK, get, get me the boilerplate out. What did Harvard write? What did Yale write? Where is the, the master copy? And then they they tweak it. And it's it's come to our attention that we have a climate of hatred on campus and we don't tolerate Yale, fill in the blank, Stanford, Harvard, Princeton. We do not tolerate climates of hate and we support uh, all free speech. However, we will not tolerate it, neither Islamophobe and there's our anti-Semitism. That's what they do. And they don't mean it because it doesn't have any real. Once in a while, they put these guys on leave, like the professor at Har uh, Cornell that said he was exhilarated on news of the atrocities. And are the DEI person at Stanford that hijacked Judge Duncan's lecture. And then they kind of disappear. And I give them credit. They don't fire them, but they go into purgatory. And then they kind of go, they drift off to another. They get either a big buyout or retirement or a recommendation, or they call up one of their friends at another university and said, hire this person or something. Right. Yeah, those scoundrels that you mentioned Oberlin before, but the 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 Oberlin administrators, uh, several of them who were involved in that yes. attack on the bakery in town. This happened. They tried to destroy that family, and then when that family yeah. won a multi million dollar settlement, they tried to welch out on it, and not pay it, sued well, again, and they kept losing in court. And one of the principals died from the stress. An older person. Right. They tried to ruin that family, and all they were trying to do is say. We really like the campus community. We bend over backward to serve it. But if you come into our store and you steal things, we have to have a, the rule of law. And they arrested yeah. people who the university said were inordinately people of color. Therefore, they were racist. Therefore, there was a boycott. Therefore, they were smeared, slandered, not just by students, by people with a Ph.D., I think who all know. ended up with who all ended up with new gigs in other institutions. That was my, well, the point. You know, they they land on their feet somewhere else, even when you they know, get I, I, I live in an area where there's not a lot of PhDs out in the middle of nowhere, much less from these types of schools. But before this happened, I was very apologetic. You know what I mean? Hey, Victor, did you go to Stanford? Ah, well, don't talk about it. And now it's going to be de rigueur, Jack. Did you see that little thing on the Internet? Uh, don't blame me that I went <laughs> to Harvard. <laughs> but I mean, really, if you have a yeah. Ph.D., you're not going to get the benefit of the doubt that it, it, you got it when it was meritocratic years ago. In my case, nearly 
45, 40, almost a half a century ago. But it's not going to be something that people want to talk about. Oh, I have a PhD from Harvard. Oh, I have a PhD from Stanford. No, because these people have ruined it. And you don't want to associate with that university. You really don't. And uh, and what they do, I mean, what did Jay, Jay Bacharia, I keep mispronouncing Jay's name, and Scott, what, did, what was their big felony? We've talked about this so many. Was it being anti-Semitic? Was it calling for the death of a whole people? No. It was trying to help the United States focus their limited resources on the elderly who were vulnerable and not young people who were not. And for that, they destroyed their reputations. So when they say they foster a climate of tolerance and free exchange of ideas, and unfortunately, people take advantage of that who are anti-Semitic, don't believe them. They don't foster that. They go after people and try to destroy any heterodox opinion that they oppose. Yeah. Hey, Victor, the now the, the shoe, or maybe we should call it the white shoe, is on, maybe on the other foot. Uh, so there are some, uh, some um, efforts in law firms, white shoe law firms, to take note of what's happening on these campuses and in these law schools and push back. And we need to get your thoughts on on this, Victor, and some other related matters right after these important messages. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. Edu slash podcast. Back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. Victor, before your um, thoughts on the white shoe law firms closing ranks on anti-Semitism, uh, I just want to welcome back one of our uh, kind sponsors, AMAC. AMAC is the Association of Mature American Citizens, and it proudly champions Americans' rights to free speech, religious liberty, and the Second Amendment. AMAC defends also parents' rights to protect their children and is fighting to restore America's election integrity with more than 2 million members nationwide. I'm one of them. AMAC is pro-faith, pro-family, pro-freedom, Again, I'm proud to be an AMAC member, and I encourage you, our listeners, to join today. Uh, Why? Well, in part to send the AARP a strong message that they don't represent conservative seniors. I don't think I'm a senior yet, Victor. I have two years to go. (laughs) So anyway, listeners, join AMAC today at amac.us forward slash Victor. 
B-I-C-T-O-R. That's AMAC, A-M-A-C dot U-S forward slash V-I-C-T-O-R. And we thank the good people of AMAC for sponsoring the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I think you could be a member at the age of uh, of uh, 50 at AMAC. And I've been a member for about, I don't know, eight, eight or nine years. Great institution, great magazine, too. Comes out six times a year. Uh, Victor, yeah, the um, white shoe law firms are now telling the prestigious law schools that they won't hire anti-Semites. And I know you talked about this with Sammy, like just one example. What's the most prestigious law law school? Harvard. The editor of the Harvard Law Review there was uh, caught on video harassing and hounding a Jewish student. Uh, so this is the, this is what well, our former elite, Stanford Stanford student well, as an undergraduate. Th- this is what our law schools are are producing. And uh, well, who well, they produce? They produce the constitutional law expert Barack Obama who doesn't understand the Constitution. He tried to run through a treaty on the Iran deal without by bypassing the Senate. He was right. our constitutional law professor and he was Harvard Review. He, he was a Harvard Review editor himself, although he was just not just like this guy, just, just like this guy. So yeah. when you hear when we hear these prestigious billets now, they don't mean anything. They are they people are selected, not on character, not on GPA, not on any of that. It's DEI or who you know. And I'm not, I'm trying to be fair on this, but there is an old boy, old boy generational white establishment that uses pull to get their kids into these. And they are matched or trumped now by the DEI people. But they have one thing in common they're not meritocratic. They're not meritocratic. And so those are the people who form the elite of these places. And so when you see this happen, don't be surprised that Stanford Law Schools say to Judge Duncan, we'd like to rape your daughters. We hope your daughters are raped. Don't be surprised. That is systematically prevalent, that attitude of crudity and cruelty on these places. And they're not meritocratic as far. If you want to get... A good lawyer in these firms, they would be much better to go to somewhere like Iowa, University of Iowa, University of Nebraska, something like that. They would get somebody who's better trained and is more stable and has common sense. And well, you know, Victor, the, the I hate to say, I, I'm glad these um, these law firms are uh, doing this. I think they they signed some number they prestigious firm, Cromwell and Sullivan, et cetera. These firms signed some joint letter about this uh, uh, plan to not hire um, anyone caught in these situ- not situations, anti-Semites. Okay. Not going to hire them. But it took, it took this uh, slaughter of, uh, of uh, Jews and the reaction to, to do this, but like, like the companies that poured money into into Black Lives Matter as as kind of insurance policy um, a- after the you know the George uh, Floyd riots, like the philanthropists, many of them conservative or not liberal, who have funded these institutions over the years. If the fact, and even this professor who I mentioned before, who I'm, th- I'm glad he wrote this piece for CNN, uh, uh, Shay Davidai at, at Columbia, but you know. The, the, is it really? Are we really surprised that we? I, I have that point? feeling all the time, Jack. 
when people say, oh, my God, and you're thinking, well, the last 10 years, they had it right in your face what they were. They were everybody knew they were anti-Semitic. Ben Shapiro spoke at Stanford, I don't know, six years ago, and I walked across this campus, and here were these posters that showed something like a raid uh, aerosol can, Ben be gone, Ben be gone, you know, like bug be gone, like he was an insect that needed to be gassed off campus, and they didn't do anything. They just said, oh, this is not the type of things that we that Stanford doesn't stand for this. But they did that, and no, but there were no consequences. Nobody got fired for that. Nobody, there was no problem. And, you know, there was a rope on campus that everybody just about shut down the campus. Oh, my God. It's And you, it was what? It was down, I think, in the lake area. And it was there for years. It was the almost grown into the limb of the tree. So it was not an active act, but the whole campus was galvanized for that. Which, if it had been accurate, fine, it should have been, but it wasn't. It wasn't even proven. But the posters were right in your face, and they didn't do anything about it. So everybody has to disabuse themselves that this university apparatus, these administrators that come out of these programs are themselves disinterested or people of character. They're not. They got to their position by make, by mouthing the necessary orthodox opinions, and they will continue to be advanced by doing that. And one of the ways that you don't become assistant provost, dean of humanities, president of Harvard is by saying that you're not going to tolerate anti-Semitism and then discipline somebody in the DIA. DEI industry are saying you cannot have on the campus a poster that calls for the genocide of a whole people. If you do that, you're not going to make it. And they know that. And this, so these donors knew it. It was just so egregious this time that nobody thought, well, I know these guys are anti-Semitic, but they wouldn't cheer on people who go in at a time of peace and a holiday in an early morning and step on babies' throats and brag about it or call their mom and say, Hey, mom, I killed 10 Jews. Allah Akbar. That's what his parents said to this captured Hamas killer. So that was a little bit too much is what I'm saying. And now everybody's saying, why give these universities money? And, you know, we're so acculturated to this, Jack. If you just everybody just just for a moment, blank out all the good things these universities did. And they did a lot of good things. And they they educated the, a whole returning group of soldiers after World War II. They gave us preeminence in finance, law, medicine, research, math, science, engineering. Yes. But just think that away for a while and look at the last decade and look at what they have been teaching when this new woke generation took a hold of the university and got rid of the old liberal generation, there was no conservatives, but they were liberal and they're gone. And just look what they do and who they turn out. And you will see that these kids that are coming out are a ignorant. They don't have much knowledge because the general education curriculum has been gutted and the grades have been inflated and the professors are advocates and not inductive thinkers. And so then you have to ask yourself, is this worth the investment? And the answer is no.
you can get a better, you can go to Clovis Community College in the middle of California where we live, and you can get a better education than you can the first two years at Stanford. That's just a fact. And that's what well, it is. So they're just running on empty, to quote Jackson. Yeah. <laughs> running on empty, it just fumes. Yeah. And these degrees, they think, well, I have a BA from Harvard and I've got a JD from Yale and that's just the gold standard. Well, it it, it should be, but it's going to fade. It's not going to be worth a lot. Right. It's going to be like driving a uh, gremlin, you know what I mean? AMC, or it's going to be like saying, <laughs> wow, I'm a... I'm have got a very prestigious job in the world. I'm the assistant uh, CEO at Disney. Oh, you are? Well, I'm in charge of the target marketing campaign. Oh, you are, are you? Well, I thought up the whole PR for anheuser Boot. Oh, you are, are you? That's what it's going to get like. It's yeah. going to be these Ivy League prestigious universities' stamp of approval will be like saying that you – or a Target person, or a Disney person, or a Bud Light person, or you know Adidas, or you're a Kane West ad executive, something like that. Yeah. Look, I'm going to read a spot now, but it's right in line what you're saying because after the spot, I want to tell you a little anecdote. So the spot is, and it's a sponsor. I hate to call it a spot, but I'd like to take a minute to welcome back uh, our sponsor, Hillsdale College. And I, I'm not sure if our listeners, particularly new listeners, and that, there are a lot of new listeners, they may not know that Victor is one of uh, one of the professors in three of the over 40 free online courses at Hillsdale College. Um, one of them, the first, American Citizenship and Its Decline. That's based on Victor's book, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America. The second VDH course is called The Second World Wars, which was based on his best-selling book by the same name. And the third course, Athens and Sparta, which is partly based on Victor's book, A War Like No Other, How the Athenians and Spartans Fought the Peloponnesian War. These courses are each seven to nine episodes long. They're self-paced, so you can take them whenever and wherever. So go right now to hillsdale.edu slash VDH to start. It's free and it's easy to get started. That's hillsdale.edu slash VDH to start. Hillsdale.edu slash VDH. We thank Hillsdale for sponsoring uh, the Victor Davis Hansen Show. So, Victor, our friend, your friend, my great friend, Dan Mahoney, who used to be a Dan taught for over 30 years at Assumption College in Worcester, Massachusetts, and is a emeritus professor there. But he, like many others, uh, uh, complained or talked about clearly the decline in the intelligence uh, of the students uh, coming into school and mixed, of course, with their activism, which was compensating for the ignorance. Anyway, Dan taught, I think it was about two weeks ago, maybe it was last weekend, Hillsdale has a graduate program and he, at the Kirby Center in Washington, and Dan was teaching course there. I think he taught about 10 hours on uh, Edmund Burke. And we talk every day, Dan, our great friends, and he said, I, oh my gosh, these students, they all knew the subject matter. They were smart. And if this was what college students were still like, it would be a joy to teach. So there are some colleges. No, I know, you know that, Victor. I, mean, I taught there 20, 20 years. years. 
And, it, and it's very clear because you go into the bookstore and you look at all the courses that are being taught in the, in the book orders. And guess what, Jack? There's not one class with a dash says studies. It's not. And when you look at the English literature courses, it's Shakespeare, it's Milton, but there's no critical race theory, critical legal theory books, critical reader response, Foucault, none of that. And, you know, it's all nuts and bolts. It's Anglo-Saxon, it's Old English, it's Chaucer, it's it's that. And that inundates the entire curriculum. So then you have students, you know, they take German, they take Latin, they take philosophy, they take history. They, you know, they have a course on World War II. They have a course on the Civil War. They ha- they know everything. And they have a, a general culture that promotes honesty. So there's no bike locks on campus. Can you imagine Stanford University? But if you didn't, I had a bike, I think, 12 years ago, and I didn't, I had a, a lock on it right in front of the Hoover. And it was gone. The one time I rode it, mm-hmm. gone. And you think that Anybody, they don't lock. I had a bike. I, when I ride there, I just leave the, the bike unlocked and go and get coffee that's never been taken. So how, if they can do that, why can't these other universities do it? Because it is, a, it is a sin of commission and omission. It's not just that they're indoctrinating students in courses that are worthless, but it's they're not teaching. At the price of having those courses, you don't right. have others. And people should ask themselves, we had the chairman of the Joint Chief quoting chapter and verse, Ibrahim Kendi. That guy took $50 million in BLM-associated money in that George Floyd aftermath and did nothing with it. And that whole center at Boston University is a disaster. And the people who were the architects of BLM are all absconded with all the money, and they have nice homes and lifestyles, et cetera. And that's what we promoted. We had people on the Joint Chiefs, the Chief of Naval Operations, the Secretary of Defense, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, ranting and raving about white privilege and white hatred and whites. And where did that all come from? It came from that type of curriculum. They were advocating that Kendi should be on that reading list. At Hillsdale, they would tell you, read Thucydides, and maybe you'll understand about the cycles of revolution in book three, and you won't have to read Professor Kendi. But, you know, there's only 400 or so that graduate every year. It's a small college, and they're they're in deep demand. It's kind of like what Harvard was in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And employers want to get their hands on those students because they know they're better educated than the Ivy League and they have better character. I mean, I'm stereotyping. Yes. Another thing that people don't talk about is the Jewish population that has always been discriminated against until recent, until the 60s and 70s, they had an informal quota because they had meritocratic admissions and then they got caught that they had a Jewish quota. I don't mean... They had higher Jews as as in the other quotas, but they just restricted them. In this repertory admissions where you admit far less so-called white people than the 66, 7 to 70 percent of the population, and then you get rid of the SAT and comparative ranking of grading, 
the Jewish population is disappearing from the Ivy League. It really is. And at least as it was once represented under meritocratic admission standards. And I don't know if that's calculated or not, but you're going to get a situation where you're going to get about 1% or 2% of the student body will be Jewish. And I think, Jack, that is the subtext of all of these demonstrations, that given our immigration policies, student visa policies, DEI policies, even though Jews make up about two and a half to two point seven percent of the population, and the Muslim population is about one point three, that's inverted at these campuses. And I think you've got a lot more DEI pro Hamas people on campus than you do Jewish people that express right. solidarity. And so the that, the administration looks at the numbers. <laughs> And the people who sympathize with it. So well, don't wanna... I don't know. It's it gets depressing even thinking about all this because here we are in 2023, and we're kind of like in a dark age. Everything is falling apart, and it came very quickly. Or did it come quickly? I mean, we have no border. You look at Ukraine war. We were told, you know, the spring offensive would end the war. We, every we on this broadcast, we said it wouldn't. And then, you know, we, we lost deterrence. Putin invaded, took advantage. We had the Chinese balloon. We have the war in Gaza. We've got, we're $33 trillion in debt. We owe $1.7 trillion. We got president doesn't know where he is. We got a vice president who does. It's even scarier that she does know where she is. And we have crime that is just exploding. Our major cities are unlivable. And I don't know whether it was just hijacked by the left very quickly or the rot was there and it just accelerated to use that now stereotype quote from the sun also rises. It was gradually and then suddenly. Maybe yeah. it was COVID. Maybe it was George Floyd. Maybe it was this Gaza war. But boy, that scab came off and what was underneath it was pretty putrid. I don't know how we get back. I think just everybody, according to their station, has to speak up. There's no time to, as we said, no time for the monastery of the mind. You've got to speak up. Uh, John Adams did say, and some of the other founders, that what they created was uh, could succeed, but required virtuous people. And uh, we've mentioned before, you know, the lack of uh, the sharp decline in say just religiosity I, I have a feeling victor personal feeling that that's a lot of backdrop to uh to this but um yeah it's a moment to stand up but it's also a moment uh victor let's just not attack what's happening on campus uh should you mention uh disney and budweiser and i love that that ted cruz the other day po- pointed out that uh, coca-cola which owns sprite the Sprite brands that in 2020, like so many corporations, uh, Coca-Cola through Sprite gave a dumped a ton of money on Black Lives Matter, half a million bucks. And now, given that BLM has uh, uh, is overtly and it's always been overtly pro-Palestinian, pro-Hamas, anti-Israel, you know, the uh, the the disgusting tweet by the Chicago BLM praising and promoting one of those Hamas paraglider murderers. So Coke has scrubbed all evidence of its donations 
to BLM from its website. And and, and Senator Cruz noted this and has pointed out. And I, I do I any comments on that, but from you, Victor, would be worthwhile. But I do believe still it's it would be important for conservative journalism to focus on on some of these things. Like who 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 were who are the corporate philanthropists of these madmen? That that created things today. It's not just Coca Cola. There are many of them. I've talked to a lot of them personally, and I belong to a couple of organizations where I see them socially, and it's kind of it can get very depressing because they want to avoid all controversy, and they want to for these corporations that went with the woke movement. It was a calculated marketing decision. Or I don't mean necessarily, I mean, because obviously it was a mistaken marketing decision because they ended up, you know, with vastly reduced purchases in the case of Bud Light, to take one example. Disney stock has really crashed. But at the time, it was a business decision that it was the path of least resistance because they felt, who should we offend more? The pro-trans are the people who believe traditionally there are two biological sexes and men shouldn't compete who were born biologically male in women's sports. And they just said, you know what? These conservative people, these traditional Americans are still 51% of the population, but they don't, they just crawl in their little homes and they don't, they don't watch these TV. They don't do this. They don't do that. And so we can just, and then they just are complacent people. They're polite. They're nice. But they don't boycott. They don't demonstrate. And so we'll just offend them. And that's the decision they made. And then for the first time in their lives, these conservatives were a little dragon and the dragon woke up and started scorching them. And it's the same thing on these protests. You know, I'll be frank, and I'm not being trying to denigrate anybody, but when you look at these protests, and I've watched hundreds of hours of these things the last three weeks, literally just to prepare for columns I'm writing. Why is it, Jack, that when you see the Jewish students, they're not going over there and screaming and yelling about killing all of Hamas? I know there's some people that probably have voiced that in Israel, but on these campuses, the Jewish students are not doing that. They're not. They're not going around and trying to get in the face and tear things down. Maybe at Stanford, when they said Israel was in dust, maybe a Jewish student took down that poster. I don't know. But that was calling basically for genocide. And why is it in the Middle East, and I've talked with Sammy, is that when you look at these demonstrations, they're all male. When you come to the United States, a lot of them are led by females. And does anybody ever say to themselves, why in the United States do women from the Middle East have such confidence in their free speech rights, and yet in the Middle East that they cheer on, they they would be silenced. Do they ever make the connection? This is a wonderful country that gives an immigrant or a visitor more constitutional freedoms than the country that they have left and which they are now promoting. No, they never make that connection. And so it's just When you want to know about the whole Middle East, you look at the type of demonstrations you see. And when you want to see a hate placard that's calling for death and destruction and someone screaming or somebody tearing down the go to the pro Hamas and you don't go to the pro Israel because you don't find it to the same frequency. And, you know, it's just 
just the way it is. And you can't say that. You cannot say that. But you can say Our problem was never intifada. It was always, you know, traditional Catholics is where we're looking, where the obvious enemies of of Western Well, you're you're literally true. There's two articles out and says the real problem is that white, I think it was in Salon, that the white uh, MAGA person is more dangerous than uh, the Arab uh Muslim dash pro Hamas pro ISIS terrorist. And that they just said that. Yeah. And then you have to just think away all this stuff. You know, you think away of Fort Hood, you think away of all the other stuff. And yep. that's what we're told. That was I think Janet Napolitano said that during the Bush uh the Obama administration that returning vets from Iraq were the most dangerous people around. And everybody knows what they're doing. They're just, it's politically correct to say a particular thing or it's a virtue signal. I get so sick of Corinne Jean-Pierre when she's asked about the epidemic of anti-Semitism. She just, (laughs) but we are looking at Islamophobia. Or Mm -hmm. did you see virtue signaling Kamala Harris yesterday talking about Islamophobia? Islamophobia, yeah. Is that, just, is that just about money for ga- that's just about 150,000 votes in Michigan that's usually decided in the last two elections by 80, you know, 10 to 80,000 yeah. votes? Is that what it was yeah. about? I mean, does well, she my... believe that with all the stuff that's going on in classes and campuses on the streets? And that does anybody believe that anti Semitism is not going on and that Islamophobia? is epidemic compared to anti she knows that but why would she say that other than just one or two states with the arab american population she's afraid of losing is that what it is uh they do project victor i don't My know friend. but why would you say that when there's no evidence for it i mean i i went on the fbi um i think it was 2019 was the latest i could find on hate crimes muslim americans Arab Americans, whatever rubric you use, are far, far down on the list of targeted hate victims compared to Jews well before Gaza. So statistically, there's no evidence. Even Christopher Ray testified that. Man of the left. He got, he got on the committee right. on television to televise. He said, as I said earlier, 60% of the victims, according to him, two, a little over 2.5% of the population. He said that. Well, why would the press secretary of the United States just ignore that data and that testimony of, of their own FBI director, unless, unless, unless. And, you know, I get I get all these letters and emails, and I print, I'm going to print some of them more on the Angry Reader, even though some of the people who subscribe to Ultra say, Victor, why do you do this? All it is is just pornography, you know, and they're just full of hate. Why don't you print a letter where a person makes a rational argument, because there is none. I don't get letters where someone says, Professor Hansen, here is why you're mistaken on Gaza. Let's go back to the 1947, 56, 67. They don't. It's just F you, you piece of, you crap. I'd like to do that. That's what you get. And people need to be reminded of that. There's no argument from these people. It's just pure hatred. It really is. Yeah. And, you know, what anti-Semitism is, isn't just third right crudity, it's disparity. It is, 
We're going to talk about the genocide, but we're not going to talk about defer. That's what about what aboutism. We're going to talk about displaced people. We're not going to talk about the 160 to 200,000 Greek Cypriots that were thrown out of their home in 1974 and are not in UN refugee camps. They went and had nothing. We're not going to talk about the Armenians that were driven out and still are driven out in Turkish language areas like Azerbaijan. So it's the asymmetry that this one particular country gets standards applied to it on matters of so-called refugees or displacement or collateral damage or anything. And I've gone through it a lot with Sammy, Jack, all the things that go on in Ukraine, and I support Zelensky defending himself, but no one would ever apply United States pressures on Israel to Ukraine. They would not. They just say, you know what? The Russians are just barbarians and you got to be disproportionate. And if you need to take out that oil field or that highway or that bridge, don't worry about collateral damage. It happens. Right. Just go. And right. you know, Mr. Zelensky, if you're under pressure and you feel that you got to win this war, suspend elections. Right. And call it, declare martial law. If Netanyahu did that, they're already tampering with him. They're already trying to get rid of him, the Biden administration. Can you imagine what they do if he did that? Right. Go ahead and, and shut down uh, North Korea. Uh, they'd stop also. every uh, air shipment of weapons to Israel. They wouldn't yeah. in a second. So it's that disparity, everybody, that is anti-Semitism, that you focus on one particular place and people, and you apply standards that you don't to yourself, you know, or anybody else. If Netanyahu had said the following, he's he's at a dinner. And he said, oh, you guys over there, I don't want you to date my daughter. If you do, it's called predator. You won't know when it gets takes you out. <laughs> I'm not joking. What do you think they would say? They'd go ballistic. Who said that? Barack Obama at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Right. He said just that. He, he joked about predator assassinations on the Pakistani-Afghan border in reference to I think it was the Jonas Brothers. He said that might want to date his daughter. Everybody laughed. They thought that was great. Let's just, you know. And then when they ask him, do you think uh, we're killing collateral people when you blow up a truck or an area or a house? Well, there's obviously uh, civilians who are being killed who shouldn't be killed. But we are going to kill the people who are trying to kill us. Bravo, Obama. Yeah, that's right. If they're trying to kill you, you got to kill them. And you can't be scientific all the time, even though you try to be. And that's what the Israelis are trying to do. And he weighed in yesterday, you know, to about criticizing Israel again. Well, Victor, you, anyway. you mentioned, you mentioned um, Kamala Harris. Maybe she was, uh, maybe she slipped up because she was, down at the border, making sure everything was getting fixed there. But, but that, I thought she was working on the space program. Well, she's so <laughs> she's spinning so many plates on sticks. It's amazing. She's an amazing woman. But who, Victor, who do you think is the person in the White House that hates her? Because obviously, there's some guy there that says to Joe, 
Hey, you remember when that debate when she called you a racist? And you, oh, yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. Uh, uh, yeah, well, we're going to fix her. We're going to make her border czar after 8 million people. We're going to make her space czar. We're going to make her AI. We got to pick things that are either unsolvable or will embarrass her, the ignorance and paucity of information she possesses. Yeah. And they do. That's the one success of the Biden administration. <laughs> it is. I, am, I actually am sympathetic with her supporters who say that they're picking on her because they are. They're just giving her assignments that they know she'll fail out and quite publicly so. Well, payback is a, as you can't say the word, but Victor, we have to talk about the border and mayors and and their pleas to the White House and Joe Biden's absence. And we'll do all that. Get your thoughts on that right after this final important message. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. So, Victor, the mayors of what city? Chicago, New York, L.A., Denver, Houston, went to the White House. They're desperate for money because of the onslaught of um, illegal immigrants in their cities, which they once upon a time praised. But they're, the costs related to this are staggering. The criminality, the, the social breakdown is, is monstrous. Joe Biden, you need to do something. Of course, I don't know that money's the solution because they want money to put people up, but something has to be done. Well, they went to the White House. And guess who wasn't there? Joe Biden wasn't there. I don't know where he was. Maybe he was in a basement in Delaware. But Victor, our big city mayors are breaking and they are getting short shrift at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, your thoughts? Well, they better be very careful because if they are too vocal, they'll end up with an Eric Adams investigation about campaign financing. Amazing, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, he was really blasting the Biden administration and they basically said to him, okay, we're going to investigate how you raise money, maybe from foreign sources. And that shut him up very quickly. And the same thing with Menendez, who was, I think, culpable of all, all sorts of stuff. But when he was on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in a, in a very, I think he was chairman for a while. And he was a little bit skeptical of the Shia Crescent theory of Middle East politics. The next thing he knew, he was indicted. And not that he shouldn't be indicted, but this administration, the people that are running it, at least, they have weaponized every avenue of government. So if you if you're going to object to an open border and you're a mayor and you were a sanctuary city and you were on the team and they all were. The whole theory of sanctuary cities was that you were going to get one or two people every year that you could put on TV and the mayor could put his arm around and say, we celebrate diversity and we want America. We the Lazarus inscription, give us your tired and poor. And that's who we are. And. We're not like these people down in Texas or 
Arizona or along the border in California or New Mexico. We're not like those people. And then, well, I don't know why they're they're angry. There's, uh, you know, five million that are flooded there. But these are not these are Hispanic people, but they're not the kind of Hispanic people that we know to object about poor people coming up that are refugees. And then suddenly they start to appear in northern and these people, largely white and elite, they go crazy. We didn't mean this. Sanctuary Sanctuary Cities was a virtue signal. It was a performance art act. It was me alleviating the guilt that I live in a very, very exclusive white neighborhood with similar types of professionals that are level. We have signs on our lawn that say racism has no place in this home. Or this is who we are. We support Ukraine, that kind of stuff. But you're not supposed to, you know, around the corner at the park, you're not supposed to bring in people from Oaxaca or Chiapas that are sleeping out there. And you're not going to put downtown in one of our hotels, that really old bed and breakfast, and put 25 people from El Salvador in it. Now, that's too much. And so we're going to call our representatives. Kind of like the people in Oakland, you know, that found out that people are getting killed by smash and grab, looting, uh, carjacking, Soros, uh, the district attorney. And all of a sudden they march on city council and said, you're you're not enforcing the law. Well, yeah, because she's a left winger that's actually putting rhetoric to reality and they don't like it. They do not like it. People who were very affluent, leisured, successful leftist people always meant that that rhetoric was supposed to be abstract or if it was concrete, it was to apply to other people. And these mayors, Jack, are really angry because suddenly this illegal immigration that they winked and nodded at and thought was sort of a boutique issue has come home and it's breaking their budgets and it's bringing all the stuff that crazy Donald Trump. Remember the first thing Donald Trump said? He came down that escalator. I was driving actually on the freeway of San Francisco and he said, and then we're going to deal with him. I'm just paraphrasing, but and Mexico's not giving their best people to us. And there, you remember, and then right. at the end, he had that little qualifier. And I'm sure there's some good people, but they just cut that out. And now <laughs> all these people are, I mean, they're, it's if they're Donald Trump in 2015. Yeah. It's so weird that. They don't think that immigration, that you allow people to come without diversity, without meritocracy, without legality, without education, without English, is so great because you can't audit the people who come in. And then once that's known, a lot of people who shouldn't come in do for that very reason. They either have a criminal background or they're engaged in criminal activities or they have no propensity that they want to work. Not all of them, as Trump said. Some of them are very hardworking. But if you can't audit, you have no idea which who is who. And there's another thing that they don't talk about. The mayors were trying to hint that. Think of the mindset. If you come in and you deliberately, the first choice you make is to break the law when you know you're breaking the law. And the second one is to break the law by residing. That starts a pattern of behavior. I can remember when I first went overseas in 1973, and unfortunately, there was a dictator in, dictatorship in Greece, but you had to get a resident per permit after three months, right? 
And everybody dreaded it. You had to go down to this office and get like 50 different stamps on your passport and a resident thing. And then when you went to get your package, you had to go through it. But there was always one or two people, Americans, who just said, screw that. I'm not going to do that. And they were there illegally. And then when they left the country, they just raised high hell. Because if you didn't have the particular stamp, you couldn't get out of the country without a fine. And I was always thinking about that. And I thought, these two people are always doing something. And they just thought the laws didn't apply to them. And now they want all of us to be worried that they can't get out of the country because they didn't get their resident permit, student permit um, established or lengthened or renewed. And so there is a pattern there that if you know what the rules are and you deliberately break them and you're not in dire threat of dying, so you're not an extremist and these people are not, then you, you're you attracting people who have a propensity to break the law and you're not attracting people who are in Mexico who go to the U.S. Embassy and apply for a green card legally. Right. We don't want those people. We want the people who break the law because they cut in front of the line. Well, Victor, we're about out of uh, time here. Um, before we, as we wrap up, I want to remind our listeners, and again, particularly our new listeners, about your website, The Blade of Perseus, which can be found at victorhanson.com, repository for so many links to um, the archives of these podcasts, your appearances on other podcasts and, and other radio shows, links to the articles you write for American Greatness and your weekly syndicated column and your Ultra articles. You mentioned Ultra before, The Angry Reader. Uh, Ultra are the two or three pieces Victor writes every week for The Blade of Perseus. Uh, you can read them if you subscribe. If you're a fan of Victor and you're not subscribing, you need to correct that. It costs five bucks to get in the door. And uh, for a full year subscription to the Blade of Perseus, it's $50. So treat yourself and you will be very happy. That's just a a ton of uh, collected over the year. It's, uh, it's uh, one or two books length of uh, Victor Wisdom. So the Blade of Perseus, VictorHanson.com is for me, Jack Fowler. I write Civil Thoughts, a free weekly email newsletter for the Center for Civil Society at Amphil, where we try desperately to strengthen civil society and civil thoughts. You go to CivilThoughts.com to sign up. We're not selling your name. There's nothing transactional. There's no risk. And I provide over a dozen recommended readings of worthwhile articles I've come across the previous week. Here's a link. And here's an excerpt. I think you will enjoy it and you will it will broaden your horizons, at least to other source, sources of really interesting uh, commentary and analysis and perspective. So, Victor, uh, we read our comments. Uh, many of them are put up on uh, iTunes slash Apple. And a lot of people comment on your website. And we'll pick a comment from your website today to wrap up the show. And it's from Peter. And he's commenting about a podcast uh, from the past week. And he writes, uh, Dr. Hansen, your comments are always insightful and thought-provoking. But today, you hit home like never before. Your comments about family, community, religion, and other buffers to keep our constitutional republic and free market successes in perspective and to remain humble and vigilant 
are incredibly important. For a moment, I thought I was listening to a reading of the Odyssey. <laughs> so I feel like I'm in the Odyssey, don't you, sometimes, that you're trying to get home? And every yeah. time I walk open the door, there's a Cyclops or a Lotus Eater or a Scylla, a Charybdis or Calypso or Circe. <laughs> I can't get home. I guess home is somewhere okay. that I grew up and I'm in the same physical place, but yeah. every it's all different now. Yeah. It's not just because of aging and it's not because I'm some white romantic, as, as the left says, you're just dreaming of an old white supreme. No, no, I'm talking about a world that when I grew yeah. up, there were very few white people. There were Greeks and Armenians and Sikhs and Mexican. It was all diverse. But I, but the difference of what I'm talking about are their values. Right. Everything about it, Victor, even even like um, comedy. You know, we look at we think back some of these sitcoms <laughs> from our and then think like, oh, that was funny. But wait a minute. If they ever tried to do Cheers today, for example, just to pick Cheers out of the And you're not oh, even make- talking. Jack Benny was funnier with his look than these comedians are with their foul mouths. Well, yeah, but you cannot. Even Don, Don Rickles, it was foul mouth, was brilliantly funny. And so was uh, a lot of those guys in the 60s. Yeah. Mort Saul. But if you but if you made a joke on a TV show about someone being fat, you'd be persecuted today for doing that. There's no sitcom today. None of you know, just not to pick on fatness. But anyway, it's just everything, everything about once upon a time, which doesn't seem so long ago, as you're right, I'm just picking up on your point, is uh, we want we want some normalcy, return to some normalcy, get arrive where we're, where our journey, Victor, and have, didn't Ulysses' dog greet him? Was it Argos, his dog? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he died. He recognized him, and then he went back. They put him on a dung pile, poor little dog, uh-huh. a copros co- pile, they called it. I'm just remembering now from the Odyssey. I used to teach it, so yeah, in Greek. But he died with a little whelp when he recognized his master. But he was his coat was all matted, and he was ill kept by the uh, Antinous and the other suitors, Euromachus, I think his name was. And they were that was a good that was a brilliant scene in Book Twenty Two of the Odyssey. The suitors they kind yeah. of like our, our generation of people. <laughs> they, yeah. they came in and ate the wherewithal of Penelope's house like our generation came in and took over what was given to us and consumed it and never invested, reinvested. So we ran up the debt, the deficits. We trashed the infrastructure. We destroyed the universities. But we hadn't, we're, we're suitors that are inhabiting something that we didn't own or build. It's easy to destroy. All right, my friend. Thanks. Okay. You've, you've shared a, a, a boatload of uh, wisdom here today. Thanks for that. all that uh, for our listeners. Thank you just for that, for listening. We will be back soon with another episode of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.